Amen. Well, if you are a member of our kids' church team and you are serving today, if you could go to the doors, please, to receive our kids. And kids, if you would like to go to kids' church this morning, uh, we're ready for you, and we'd love to have you uh, hanging out back there. Uh, we, I just want to make you aware that this is a, a significant ministry of our church. It's so, so important that we create an environment for our young people uh, to experience the love of Jesus Christ, to hear teaching on who he is and what he's done for them. And that means that we need a lot of adult volunteers who are willing to invest of their time and their energy out there. And so we continually remind you of this need, but I'd love for you to be praying about whether or not you feel like God is kind of calling you in that direction to offer some time and some energy out there. I think that would be a huge blessing for our entire church family. And there is a need there. You could talk to Maggie Wilkerson or Lindsay Hoffman or myself or somebody from our team, and we could make those steps to get you set and ready to serve out there. But we would love your consideration. All right, if you have a Bible, go ahead and get with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're doing a series going through the, the letter of 1 Peter, and we're, we're looking at this idea that I think is pretty obvious in the letter, uh, the idea being that if you are a Christian uh, and you are faithful to God, oftentimes what you find is that you are out of step with contemporary culture, and, and at times, culture is hostile toward you. And so you're going to need to know, how do I live this thing out? How do I live faithfully in this season? So let me go ahead and read these verses, verses 13 to 21 of chapter 1, and then we'll pray and we'll get to work. So it reads like this. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. So your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that as we open your word, that you by your spirit would speak. Help us to hear your voice and help us to be your people. Help us to be a people who are different and who make choices that are reflective of your character, Lord. So help us to be your holy people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One of the things that you'll note here is uh, that God, here's, here's kind of what this paragraph or this section is doing. It's reminding us that God has done something on our behalf. God has done something significant to give us a new identity. And based on that, based on what God has done, we need to live in a new way. That's the point here. That's what Peter is saying. God has done something for us. And so based on that reality of God doing something that gives us a new identity, we actually better start living out that new identity in Christ. So as you note, uh, the very first word in our section is the word, therefore. 
And every time you see a therefore, you ought to ask, what is it therefore? What does it connect? Because it's connecting the dots for us. It's telling us that whatever instruction he's about to give, it is based on what he has already said. And so you go back, and actually you should be reaching through all 12 of those first verses there, recognizing that he's saying, in view of what God has done for you, therefore, be different, be holy, be set apart for the purposes of God. Now, this is an important ordering, okay? The, the first 12 verses, they have no commands in them. No commands whatsoever. It's not like you need to know this stuff, you need to believe this stuff, you need to do this stuff. No, it's just saying, this is what God has done. And then in our section, verses 13 and following, it begins to give us commands. We need to do these things. We need to set our hope on something. We need to be a holy kind of people, but it is all based off of what God has done for us. In other words, this is kind of the gospel dynamic. Because God has done something for us, we respond with obedience of faith. So God has done something, and then we respond in turn. So theologians put it like this. It's the, it's the ordering of indicative first, then imperative. Those are big, fancy words. It's basically saying indicatives are describing what God has done, and those always come first. It's always a description of, here's what God has done, then the imperatives follow from there. Now, if you try to reorder this, if you try to go backwards, you get in trouble really quickly, because what happens is you start to try to live out of your obedience as a way to, to try to prove that you should have a relationship with God. It's exactly backwards. The Bible repeatedly, over and over and over again, does this. It tells us, here's what God has done, therefore, you live like this. give you a, a, an example. You're probably familiar with the Ten Commandments, right? So Moses goes up Mount Sinai, God descends on the mountain, God speaks, uh, he, he reveals himself, he writes on stone tablets the Ten Commandments. It's like ethical instructions of do this and, you know, don't do these sorts of things. And the Ten Commandments are so significant that they really are a, a, a feature of both the Jewish and the Christian faith. We would look at the Ten Commandments and say, if you want to understand the ethical teachings of Judaism or Christianity, you look there. I mean, it's kind of like, uh, like a table of contents, so to speak, of these are the sorts of things that people who follow God ought to know. But one of the features of the Ten Commandments is the historical prologue. So before God ever tells us to do anything, he tells us what he did. At the front end of the Ten Commandments is this little thing that goes like this. I am the Lord your God who rescued you, who brought you out of slavery in Egypt. He says, this is what I've done. So you need to know that first. Then he says, here are 10 different things that express my heart for you. In other words, even the Ten Commandments are a document that reveal that God is a saving God, and he brings us into a relationship with himself through his own activity. He pursues us. He goes after us. He calls us. He redeems us. And then when we receive that, then he says, okay, in light of that, in view of that, because of that, here are the sorts of things that I want you to do. Paul House in Old Testament scholar, he puts it like this. He says, the, the law of God, it's not a salvation document. It's not a document trying to explain how you could be saved. It's a discipleship document, meaning you have a relationship with this God. Now he's revealing what he would like for you to do, the kind of way that you ought to live in this world. So Tim Keller puts it like this. It's the difference between religion and Christianity. Religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. I do the right stuff, 
That's proof that God likes me. I obey, therefore I'm accepted. That's, that's a faulty religion. Christianity, on the other hand, says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. It's a world of difference. A world of difference. If you understand that God has pursued you, has redeemed you, has saved you, then any act of obedience out of, a, out of that understanding would be a glad, joyful response to God's saving work. And that's what we need. Now, I'm spending extra time here because I think if we miss this, we, we can get off track real quick. The whole, the whole section here will, will be skewed. We are reminding ourselves of what God has done in Christ Jesus that we have been born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's in the first 12 verses. We have an inheritance that can never perish or spoil or fade, and it is kept in heaven for us. We are filled with a glorious and inexpressible joy on account of what God has done. The prophets have revealed this in the scriptures, and this message has been announced to us through the preaching of the good news of the gospel. God has done something for us. We're a new creation. Therefore, be holy. That's the point. Be different. Live in a way that reflects that saving work. So, in this section that we're looking at, there are a bunch of different bullet point ideas, and what I'm trying to say is they all contribute to this one main thought. Christians are supposed to live differently, and they're supposed to do that because God has done something for them that makes them new. So let's look at them. First off, a future hope. Verse 13, a future hope. Verse 13 says, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. In other words, it's saying what we need to do, and this is reiterated throughout the letter, what we need to do is we need to look forward to a day when we understand Christ is going to come again. We need to look to that day and we need to set our hope on that day because on that day, the Lord is going to bring with him grace. All this grace that is going to be brought to us when he is revealed at his coming, he is going to come. He's going to do away with my sinful disposition. Hallelujah. He's going to do away with sickness and death and pain and all these different things. For the old order of things is going away. He's going to make all things new. There's a new heaven and a new earth and new bodies. And he's bringing with him all of this grace that will be ours. And, and we will be glorified. And there will be a consummation. And there will be an eternal wedding party because we will be married to our maker. And we will enjoy that forever. So we look forward to that day and we set our hope on that day where the grace will be brought to us at Jesus Christ and his coming. So we're, we're drawing in resources for today because today, well, today's not that day, right? Today feels like the world is broken. The world is hostile. The world is not the way we would want. People are getting sick. Homes are getting devastated. Things are breaking. Things are falling apart. Our bodies are falling apart. Everything seems to be broken. So today, we look ahead and we draw in some of those resources. And we set our hope fully on that reality. So Martin Luther puts it like this. He's got, he says, I've got two days on my calendar. I've got that day and two day. That day when Christ returns, and that one I'm always mindful of because that informs everything I'm going to do today. That's how we ought to live as believers. We are looking forward to the return of Christ, and that return is inspiring the way that we live presently. Well, it tells us also that with 
minds that are alert and fully sober. We're to set our hope, but we're to do that with minds that are thinking about the realities of God. It's, um, it's an interesting phrase, and uh, I understand why NIV didn't bring it across this way. It's actually the phrase, gird up your loins, right? So you hear that and you go, okay, that makes sense. They just kind of, you know, left that one behind and just put it like this, with minds that are alert. Because to gird up your loins, that, we, we don't even know what that means. In their society, they didn't have pants. They didn't have like pants like we would with two legs. They had you know, cloaks and flowing robes, and, and in, their, in biblical societies, um, during, during biblical times, I should say, uh, there, there wasn't a lot of, you know, physical activity in those sorts of outfits, uh, and that was intentional. But if you were to do something requiring physical activity, you would take the flowing end of your garment, and you would pull it up, and you'd put it in your belt. You'd gird up your loins so that you're ready for action. Okay, here's, here's where it plays out in the Bible. Uh, during the night of the Passover, do you guys remember that? The Lord says, tonight it's happening. So make your meal and eat it standing up, eat it in haste, because salvation and judgment are coming. Gird up your loins. Be ready. Salvation and judgment are happening any moment. So here, Peter's saying, that's how we're supposed to live right now. Gird up the loins of your mind. You better be prepared you better be thinking very clearly. In fact, it says with minds that are alert and fully sober. That, that concept, I actually in the last couple of years have spent a great deal on that word because uh, as we became an independent church and we were looking at our eldership team and we were considering how to, how to build it out, how to train future elders, how to expand the team, and then you know things like the requirements of what sorts of people the Bible lays out as uh, candidates for eldership. One of, the, one of the requirements for eldership is sober-minded. And so I began to think through that, and I began to really wrestle with, well, what does that mean exactly? Well, to be sober-minded means it is a person who is resolute in the way they think about things. That they're not just easily swayed, they're not fanatical, they're not like, hey, I've got a new idea, and we're, I'm going to charge hard after it, but I'll change my mind in six months. No, no an elder is sober-minded. An elder is meant to be the kind of person who's sober-minded, who, who thinks clearly, who is very alert and very diligent and very purposeful and very reasoned in the way that they consider things. And they're not just going to always respond to the faddish things that are going on in society. An elder is somebody who's sober-minded. So Christians are meant to be a people, all of us, according to Peter, are to be a people who are prepared for action, mentally prepared for action, thinking very clearly about the things going on, and are sober-minded meaning we're alert. We're not gonna, it's not going to go right past us where we're just unaware. We're just lackadaisical. And also we're sober-minded in the sense that we're not fanatical. We're not just going to lose our minds over different things that are going on. We are carefully thinking about what God is up to. That's how Christians are to live in this moment. In fact, he uses the same thing later on in chapter 5. He says, be alert and sober-minded. Here's why. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. You've got an enemy. He hates your guts. He wants to destroy you. You had better be of your wits. You better be thinking clearly. You better be sober-minded and reasoned in the way that you consider what God is up to in this world. So you have a future hope. So set your mind, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Secondly, we're to live a holy life, verses 14 to 16. It says, 
As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. You're, you're a new creation, and a part of being new is that you are a child of obedience. That's the phrase there. It's the child of obedience. It means that it's like your parent is obedience, meaning you're reflective of this characteristic of you want to obey what God wants you to do. You are a child of obedience. So you're, su- you're supposed to not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. You're supposed to live in a new, new way as a child of obedience. It reminds me of a conversation that God had with Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 35 God's talking to one of the prophets, and he says, have you ever heard the story of the Rechabites? Have you ever heard of them? This is Jeremiah 35. I'm going to paraphrase this so you can go back and fact check me later. But he basically says to Jeremiah, he says, have you heard of these dudes? They're an entire people whose great, 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 however many times you have to say that grandparent said, do not drink wine, do not build houses, do not plant We're going to be a nomadic people. And so God says, Jeremiah, have you heard of these guys? It's pretty wild, isn't it? They're listening to the commands of their ancestor, and they obey with diligence. And then he says, my kids, they don't listen to a word I say. Isn't that funny? And and again, I'm paraphrasing, but God is basically saying the the descendants of Jehonadab have carried out the command of their forefather. But these people, my people, my children, they have not obeyed me. What gives is what God is saying there. Now listen, why is it that Christians, as children of obedience, so often we don't really give a rip about what God wants us to do? We're making our own choices. It just doesn't fit, which is why Peter is reminding us here, as children of obedience, do not live this ignorant way of life, these evil things when you were, this, this evil way of life that's carrying over from this former lifestyle, you're a new creation. You should be looking to obey what God wants you to do. In fact, you are to be a holy people. Verses 15 and 16, it says, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. I love this. Peter is quoting from Leviticus. This is a freebie. It's just a sidebar in the sermon. One of the things that we, that, I, that, that we need to be aware of is New Testament Christianity believes that the book of Leviticus can apply to us. And that's a good thing. And I understand. I understand, okay, a book about infectious skin diseases and mold on walls and all these different weird things. We look at Leviticus and we go, oh, I'm staying away from that book. That book is weird. But Peter seems to think that there is a direct application for New Covenant believers, for people today. That's why he's writing like this. It is written, be holy as I am holy, declares the Lord. We are to be a people who are holy to the Lord. That word, it means whole, integrated. It means like everything about us is integrated because we are living in relationship to our holy God. We're living in a way that reflects who he is, and, and we're called to do that. It reminds me of the, uh, the priests in the temple. So in the old uh, you know, ceremonial system, they had everything was clean or unclean. It was either, you know, sanctified to God or it, was con- or, or it was defiled. And so they just had like everything they ate, everything that they would do. There were all these different rules to try to help people understand whether or not something was, was fitting to be in the presence of a holy God. 
And so they would wash things and they would make sacrifices. They do all this different stuff. They were trying to just live in a way that was set apart to God. But the priests who, who lived and worked within that temple system, they had all this gear that they would wear, like special underwear and then clothes and then a vest over the top of it and it had all this different stuff on it. And then they'd put on a turban and then on the turban was this little placard and it says, holy to the Lord. They had this thing on their foreheads. So they're going to work, putting on their uniform, getting themselves ready. And even as they're doing that, they're reminding themselves, my work here is significant. I am set apart to God. Now, Christians, if, if Peter's right, he's saying Christians are meant to be holy to God. Be holy as I am holy. That means that we don't wear hats anymore. We shouldn't have signs on our foreheads. But when we go to work, we should be thinking about the fact that we are, are supposed to be living in a way that is consecrated to God, holy to God. We are God's representatives wherever we go. We are set apart for his purposes and for his glory. We are meant to look different because we have a different set of priorities, a different value system, a different king. We're a different people. Be holy as I am holy, declares the Lord. We serve an impartial judge. Look at verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, it's saying you are going to stand before God as a judge you're going to stand before him and he's going to evaluate your life. And the beauty of Christianity is we know what the verdict is ahead of time. If you're a follower of Christ, we know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But Christians still will stand before God the Father as judge. And we will give an account for the life in which we've lived and all the idle words that we've spoken and all the activities we've engaged in and every heart motivation that we've ever expressed. We will give an account to God, and he will judge our work impartially, meaning he will be fair. But it's reminding us that we have that day coming, so we should be living today in light of the judgment to come and standing before him and wanting to see that look on his face of, of being pleased, of being able to say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter my rest. So verse 17 goes on to say, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. So, so you're serving an impartial judge, therefore live as strangers in this land. Live differently. Live as a representative of that father and his judgment and his desires. Live that out now. Make those choices now. Live in a way that reflects your pilgrim status here on earth and do that with reverent fear. Here, here's one of the things I hope that we can embrace. If we're going to be faithful to God, if we're going to be holy, if we're going to live in a way that's pleasing to him, that means that we as believers will look different than the world. I don't care how great the world is. I don't care what society we're talking about. If we're faithful to God, we're going to look strange. And that strangeness will provoke hostility. Darkness hates light. And so we will become more and more ostracized from society. And I'm I'm, you know, I'm not a prophet and I, I'm not a sociologist. I'm just looking down the pipe and I'm going, you know what? It's probably going to get a lot harder to be a believer in Christ. We have gone through a season that is abnormal, meaning a season where persecution is not even, not even a, a live option, right? When I was doing youth ministry, we had a, a planning meeting and I sat down with a group of people and we're talking about an upcoming sermon that I was going to do on persecution one of the leaders was like, 
what do we even mean by this? Should we even preach on this? This doesn't make sense. We don't do this. It's so abnormal to us because we're living through this season that is unique. But if you look at the global church or the history of Christianity, persecution, that's normal. What we have been through is abnormal. So we need to be a people who are living as foreigners here in reverent fear. Now, all of that reminds us of the relationship that we have with God. He's our Father who judges us, and that's a good thing. When I was uh, in middle school, I said something that was awful about a teacher at my school. I said something that was slanderous. Now, I was a kid, and I didn't know the severity of what I was doing, but I spoke something that caused uh, kind of an uproar because other students started to say the same thing, and then they traced it back to me. And they called me down to the principal's office. And I'm a kid who, I don't like to get in trouble. I don't even like to draw attention to myself. So I'm, you know, shaking like a leaf, like going to the principal's office. And then I see my dad in there. And I'm like, this is a bad day. And so they sit me down and they, they start talking to me. Did you say this? Did you really say this about this teacher? Do you understand what that, what that has done to them and how it has offended them? And and their reputation within this community. And it was, you know, such an such a, uh, inappropriate thing for me to say. And I just felt the weight of that. I felt embarrassed. I felt, um, I knew that I had really messed up. And my dad was on the school board, and I'm dealing with the principal, and they're trying to figure out what they're going to do with me. And, uh, you know, they, they offer up a punishment, and we walk out of there. And I remember feeling two things. One, I remember feeling so upset because I disappointed my dad, right? To see that look on his face, uh, it was pretty ca catastrophic. The other thing, though, that happened simultaneously, he puts his arm around me, and we walk out of there together. And I, then I, I'm reminded, this is my dad, and he loves me, and he wants what's best for me. When we serve God with reverent fear as the Father who impartially judges us, both of those things are true. We ought to be living in a way where we say we would never want to disappoint him. We would never want to do something that would, that would cause that relationship to feel distant. We, we want to live in a way that's pleasing. But at the same time, we understand he's our father. And he loves us and wants what's best for us. Well, finally, an invaluable redemption, verses 18 to 19. It says, uh, you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life that was handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. You were redeemed. If you're a Christian, this is a past tense reality that is, we're, we're drawing our, ten, our attention from. We were, we were redeemed from this empty way of life. We were living without reference to God. We had no, no true purpose, no true significance. We were, we were just kind of going with the flow of things. This was handed down to us. We were living without God and without hope but we were redeemed from that. Redemption happens when, let's say, a, a piece of property changes hands. So the tree farm, imagine this. Imagine if the economy goes sideways and in order to pay bills, we have to sell off a part of the tree farm. And we're doing that just to make ends meet. And, and it's a field that we sell off. And, and if we were living in the uh, you know, Old Testament times, one of the things that could happen is a descendant from the Williams family could eventually redeem it. If we got our feet back under us, let's say, let's say Harrison's child, my boy, the little one that was up here, let's say he has a kid, 
down the pipe, you know, we're in a better spot. They're able to redeem the land. There's a kinsman redeemer, and there's a way in which that goes, that that, that happens. That somebody who's a direct uh, descendant would have that opportunity. Or if you're an employer, uh, employee, and you find yourself in a job situation where you, you become a bond servant. You go to work, but you don't come home from work. You, you, because of your indebtedness, you end up just, your job is your life, and you become a bond servant. There's a way to redeem a bond servant. And both of those things are very costly. To redeem anything, there's a process for it, but people do not part ways with fields or full-time employees and do that on the cheap. They, this will be a very, very costly reality. And this is reminding us, if you're a Christian, you have been redeemed. And the cost of your redemption, it is the most incredible cost that has ever been offered up. Not gold, not silver, not something that can perish, not a, not a cashier's check that was written. You were redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. The most valuable thing in all of creation, the most valuable thing in all of anything that's ever existed, Jesus Christ offered his life as the ransom, as the payment. His blood was spilt for you. The point is, if you understand how valuable your redemption is, there is no way that you should live in a way that diminishes it. If you understand how costly it was for you to be brought to God, there is no way that you should allow your life to communicate, that doesn't have value to me. It's saying that you were redeemed by Christ's blood. Live like it. When something is valuable, you treat it differently, right? Reese had braces. She was up here a minute ago. My daughter had braces, and and, uh, they did it to try to make room for her adult teeth. And then they gave her retainers. And right on the, you know, all the paperwork, do not lose the retainers. Do not break the retainers. Do not misplace the retainers. If they go missing, it's $600. So we have a case for her retainers. And when she's eating, we put them in the case. We put them up on a shelf. The retainers are very valuable, so we treat them like that. Our dog, however, does not understand the value of a retainer. And so Winnie, or puppy, she loves to chew stuff. It's her superpower. So you get her a bone that's supposed to last months, and she can make it vanish in 10 minutes. When she sees the retainers, there's no difference to her between that and a chew toy. It's the same. Puts it in her mouth, chomps down on it, crunches, does cool things in her mouth. She's like, I like this. She's able to destroy retainers quite quickly. Um, three, three times now. I glued them back together, by the way. I'm cheap. <laughs> but the point that I'm making here is that a lot of times Christians, by the way we live, we communicate that the costly death of Jesus Christ is of no value to us. We don't allow our lives to be reflective of the character of God, and by doing so, we communicate. We don't really understand what happened. We treat the blood of Jesus Christ as if it's insignificant, as if there's no difference between a $600 retainer and a $2 chew toy. We just don't get it. Christians, if you understand what God has done for you in the sending of his son, then your life should begin to grow in holiness. You should be living in a way that says, I want to do everything that I can to respond with obedience of faith because he saved me, he redeemed me, and I joyfully respond with obedience and faith. Finally, an incomparable Christ, look at verses 
20 and 21. He, Christ, was chosen before the creation of the world, but he was revealed in these last times for your sake. This was the plan of God all along. This wasn't a revision to the plan. This wasn't plan B. This was God's intention all along. Before he even created, there was a lamb that was slain before the foundations of the earth. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but in these last times, he has been revealed. There's no ambiguity about it anymore. There's no uncertainty. There's no guessing or scratching of heads going, I wonder how this is going to play out. No, God has made it very plain. He sent his son to die in our place, and he rose that son from the grave And we can trust in him to experience salvation. And because of that, we need to live in a way that is holy. Look at verse 21. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. So your faith and your hope are in God. Your salvation is Christ alone. He died for you. He rose from the grave. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. He is alive and well. And our faith then and our hope is in him. What's the point? Peter is saying, look, if you understand what God has done for you, if you're a Christian, if you've been born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, if you're a new creation, live like it. Let your life be reflective of the character of God. Do not continue to do these ignorant things that were a part of your former way of life, but allow your whole life, the entirety of your life, to come into conformity with the image of Christ himself. Make every choice about him and his desire for you. Recognize that you are set apart for the Lord. Go about every activity of your life, your hobbies, your work, your parenting, uh, everything that you do, make it for the glory of God. Let your life be pleasing to him. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for our salvation. And we're honest about the fact that often that uh, beautiful reality doesn't land on our hearts like it should. Jesus, you spilt your blood so that we could be redeemed. It wasn't with gold or silver, but with your costly blood, the lamb without blemish, without defect. You bled and died for us, and you rose from the grave, Lord, so our salvation is in you. But Lord, we want our lives to conform to your will. Help us to be an obedient people, living in a way that is strangely different to the world because we are citizens of the kingdom and most importantly, we are followers of the king. Make us like him, please. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.